Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 23, these are God's words. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of Yahweh might be shown to them. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. For I am Yahweh your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. And they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. This is a weighty passage. Pun intended, that is the way the third commandment is worded, that we should not bear, carry the name of the Lord emptily, especially, of course, on our lips, but also upon ourselves. The third commandment is perhaps one of the most intimate of the commandments because it recognizes that the Lord in our redemption has restored us to us something marvelous from our creation that we should have his name upon us and that we should have 
his name upon our lips. And so it is a weighty passage in any age. But it is a especially weighty passage for us, for the church in this day, which is in the midst of an epidemic of blaspheming. This goes with the epidemic of the breaking of the second and the fourth commandments. We do not treat God's worship as holy, although it is the way by which he has commanded to bring us near himself, to shine upon us with his blessing, and to bring us into his fellowship as the earlier part of this passage proclaimed. We do not keep the fourth commandment. We do not consider the calling together of the Lord, this holy convocation, as holy and glorious because of whom it is to whom we are called. The time that he has set apart for our worshiping him and having that highest of our fellowship, that fellowship that is with him in worship and our highest fellowship with one another, that fellowship that we have together in worshiping him. And we take the name of the Lord upon our lips lightly. In fact, it is quite frequent in the churches that the name of the Lord himself is used as a throwaway word, an expletive delative, which we have shortened to refer to as expletives. But the whole is expletive delative, something that we throw into things that we say that could just be just as well be thrown away, but they are inserted and often as curses. And our Lord's own name is used that way. Often not the way, not the word Yahweh, sometimes still the word Jehovah because of the old pronunciation of it. But even that glorious name that is put upon us as believers, the name Jesus. For when the Lord marks us as his own and baptizes us into the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the rest of the New Testament speaks of it, doesn't it? As being baptized into the name of Jesus or that baptism on earth that signifies and seals unto faith baptism into Jesus himself. And yet the name Jesus is often used without reference, indeed often used as a curse, so much so that 
our hearts and ears and consciences remain unwounded when we are among those who do not know the Lord and they use his name that way because we have even used, heard it used that way among those who profess to be believers. And so we come to Leviticus 24, 10 through 23, conditioned not to cry out before God and bemoan the low spiritual condition of the church and the lack of the knowing of him and of his holiness, what husband would let his wife's name be used that way. We come to this passage conditioned to read about the penalty, which is the point of the whole passage, or at least the occasion of the whole passage. You say, wow, that's an overreaction. That's how American Christians in the 21st century tend to respond. And they're so sure of themselves that they will even read things like Leviticus 24, 10 through 23 as evidence that to them, evidence, that the God who has declared himself to us in Christ has come in his Son to redeem us in Christ is not the same as the God of Leviticus 24, 10 through 23. And so this is a weighty passage for us. And we hope by God's help and the Spirit's blessing upon it to us to come to the condition where we so treasure the holiness of God's being, the holiness of God's worship, the holiness of God's day, and the holiness of God's name because he is the one who has shined the favor of his divine blessing on us and brought us into the divine fellowship and has made us a holy people who belong to the holy God. Now we see that in this passage, or we hope to consider it briefly under these three heads. First, a holy people, second, a holy place, and third, a holy name. As we begin in verse 10, it says, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian. Notice that the father is not named an Israelite, and there is a contrast in, implied here in verse 10. It says, not an Egyptian who has followed the procedure given uh, late in Exodus 12, where in order to be considered holy so that he can participate in the Passover, he may be taken into the household of an Israelite man by circumcision. Then he would have household, like Shelomith, his wife, does, 
Indeed, his wife is still considered the daughter of Dibri, and he would have tribe like she does, or the tribe of Dan. But this is that 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14 circumstance in which you have the believing mother and the unbelieving father, and then you have a son. And is he considered holy? Certainly the people among whom he went out are considered holy. They are called here the children of Israel, using especially Jacob's covenant name, the name that the Lord gave him twice. He goes out among the children of Israel. And so they are a holy people and his mother is still counted as one of them. And that's why we know his mom's name, but we don't know his dad's name. In the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of the covenant, the significant thing is his believing parent. And in a creation in which God has ordered for husbands to be head over their wives and fathers to be head of the household of their children, this is very significant, isn't it? It teaches us to regard the status of covenant children very highly. Indeed, this son of Shelemith has access to the judicial system of Israel not as a stranger, although his father would have had access as a stranger, but as a covenant member through his mother. And that is the implication of the second half of verse 11. They brought him to Moses, and then it's as if there's a notation in the court proceedings for us. His mother's name was Shalemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And then they put him in custody that the mind of Yahweh might be shown to them. Notice also that he doesn't only defile himself when he blasphemes. Verse 13, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp, and we'll consider that in a moment, him who has cursed, then let all who heard lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. When a member of the covenant community, when a member of the church sins against God, as sins in a scandalous way or is unrepentant of any sin, which is scandalous. The congregation as a whole is defiled. Not just the one who sinned. And so they, they perform this leaning ceremony, which we've identified throughout the book of Leviticus as... Uh, We've recognized, learned, sorry, we need the word identified for later in the sentence, which we've learned throughout the book of Leviticus uh, as an act of identifying with the one who has sinned. These are not 
self-righteous Israelites who in themselves deserve God's favor and are doing well enough. These are Israelites who know that in themselves continues to remain this capacity for the blasphemy that has come out of this Israelite woman's son's mouth. They are a church in the wilderness, as Stephen calls them in Acts 7, verse 38. And they lay their hands on his head and then says, let all the congregation stone him. And then again in verse 16, all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. And we see this in excommunication today. That when someone's sin rises to the level of needing to be admonished, first of all, not just excommunication, the censure of admonishment takes place in the midst of the congregation, the congregation not uh, despising the one who has sinned, recognizing together before God that our only hope for our guilt and for our cleansing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when it comes to excommunication, that too takes place in the Holy Assembly. Sin among the church, especially sin that is censured as this is here. Censured means coming under the penalty of God. Is not an occasion for self-righteousness or shaming or despising. It is an occasion for mourning. For it has come upon us all. And it is a reminder of the potential that is within us. This is one of the things that so exposes those who are trying to trap Jesus. In the beginning of John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple. And they come self-righteous, not only against the woman who is caught in adultery, but self-righteous against Jesus himself. And you notice what they do. They bring a freshly caught adulteress, not outside the camp, but into the temple itself. And so they are not grieving over the sin that has been brought upon the assembly, and they are not uh, doing this out of regard for the holiness of God and his image and the holiness uh, of the people. And we do not know what the Lord Jesus writes uh, in the dirt of the temple uh, precinct there. Whether it was identifying him as the one who wrote with his finger on the stone tablets or writing something perhaps from this portion of scripture or whatever it was. But the people of God are a holy people. We've been consecrated to him. 
And we must take sin among us seriously. First of all, the sin in your own heart, and the sin on your own lips, but even the sins of our brothers and sisters. So that's the first thing we see in this passage, a holy people. And the second play in the second secondly we see a holy place. Now the holy place is what the first part of this chapter was talking about. It's right outside the Holy of Holies, and in it were the lampstand and the incense altar and the table for the showbread. And we already had communicated, even in the first part of the chapter, didn't we? Remember what the veil was called? In last week's portion, it was called the veil of the testimony. They're naming it after what was behind it. You remember the direction the lamp shone? The lamp shone as if it were coming from the testimony, from where the ark was, from where the Lord was to be thought of as sitting enthroned above the cherubim. And so you have the, this, this holiness that is being communicated. Yes, in decreasing intensity as you go, uh, as you go out from the ark itself to the veil, to the lampstand, to the table. But by putting this passage where it is, the Holy Spirit communicates to us that the holiness does not stop at the door of the tent or at the temple precinct. The people who are called together around the place or to the place where God makes his glory known and makes his holiness to dwell for our worship and our blessing and our fellowship with him, they are a holy people and their camp is a holy place. So he says, they fought each other in the camp, verse 10, identifying the desecration now, not only as the blaspheming of the name uh, in verse 11, but the place where this fighting was taking place, the fighting itself being a, um, implied here, uh, a disregard uh, for the holiness of God and the holiness uh, of his people uh, and conducted in such a way, perhaps implied by verse 20, as already disregarding the name of God that he had put upon the people, the people of Yahweh, that he had put in the lips, in the mouth of the people. And we'll come uh, to that uh, in a moment. But not only do they fight each other in the camp, but note the instruction that is given in verse 14 begins with where? Take outside the camp. And then we have all of this instruction that is meant to go together, which is important when we get to verses 17 through 21, noting that that goes together with the weightiness, the holiness of the name of God. But you have uh, all of this uh, instruction. And then the conclusion is, then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside the camp. 
Now, you and I, we hear the word the camp, and we think maybe of a, of a camping trip with uh, you know, a dozen or two uh, folks, or maybe um, if you were part of a huge youth group, you take over you know, all three sections of a, a great big camp in the woods, and there's a few hundred of you, and it feels pretty big. The camp of the Israelites had somewhere between 2 million and 6 million people. This is a long trip outside the camp. The camp as a whole then was this extension of the tabernacle, this extension of the holy place, which was to be situated in the middle of it. And until you got to the boundaries of the camp, You were in a holy place because of the holiness of the Lord who had gathered to himself this holy people and the expression of his holiness, especially in the tabernacle. Eventually this extends to the land. Notice that the instructions here are given not just for when Israel is camping, not just for when they're in booths, as they will, once they get into the land, celebrate once a year by camping out in booths. But the instruction in verse 16 is intended to continue when they enter into the land. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. And so there was the necessity of having regard for the holy place where they lived, the holy place where they were. Now, your household ought to be consecrated to God. And there is an extent to which this property has one that has been set aside for the Lord's holiness, for the Lord's worship should be respected. And even perhaps uh, it is good for us in the way that we conduct ourselves in this building, in this room, to be mindful of what we do weekly in this room, although it is not holy the way that the tabernacle was holy. But you and I don't dwell only on earth, do we? If you are not, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are united to him by faith. And when the believing congregation gathers for worship, you assemble to heaven. Now we don't get to stay there. We will one day. Your soul at first. Uh, Your body will remain in the grave until the resurrection. But you and I ought to take seriously, shouldn't we? that we have just been to heaven on the previous Lord's Day or the current Lord's Day and that we will soon be to heaven again. And even in between, we are united with Jesus who sits in heaven. And so there is a necessity of the believer recognizing what God is teaching us here in Leviticus 24, 10 through 23 and applying it to our union with Christ and refusing 
ever to bear the name of Christ, to bear the name of the triune God that was put upon us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit applied to us. We must never bear it carelessly, coarsely, crassly, let alone sinfully. How much greater is the place that we worship? What should be our preparation for going there? What should our holy living be like as those who visit there weekly? This, of course, in one of the plainest excommunication cases in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 5, is one of the concerns for the Apostle Paul. As he writes to the Corinthians, he uses the language of the Passover, doesn't he? He says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What are you doing letting the leaven of sin into your life, into the congregation's life? And you're so proud of how gracious you have been to this man when instead, as a congregation, there ought to have been the spiritual equivalent of this leaning ceremony. Rather than being proud, you should have all mourned. You should have all grieved. Don't you know that you're about to come and partake of Christ again in the public worship? One of the many indicators of a more than annual taking of the supper. But this idea of holy place continues, even if it is not a specific place on earth. It is much more intensified by the fact that it is a specific place in glory. So the holy people, the second uh, holy na- holy place, and the third place, a holy name, Yahweh. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, in verse 11 and at the end of verse 16, uh, we did not say of Yahweh, and that's because the Hebrew doesn't say of Yahweh. If you're looking in a copy of the Word of God, uh, you'll notice that it's put in italics, um, we don't have the uh, italics in the handout, but uh, I made it a, a very light gray so that you could see the places where it is not supplied. Now, that's not because we are not to use the name of Yahweh. It's actually precisely because we are to use it in the right way. And it also drives home the point. When you read verse 11... And you read it the way it is written, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. There's only one name that can be, isn't it? You don't need your English version translators to stick it in there. By not using it, he emphasizes how great is this name that has been blasphemed. And now Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also, especially the name Jesus, also those particular names that uh, the Lord gives us that refer especially to him, God and Lord and Christ. His name is holy. How we think it, how we speak it, how we are willing to hear it said are just as much a part of the first table of the law as not worshiping Dagon, are just as much 
a first part of the first table of the law as not having giant stained glass windows of, of some hideous reconstruction of a man or charming reconstruction of a man are just as much a part of the first table of the law as delighting in his day and devoting his day to that to which he has devoted his day. And so this does, in this section of Leviticus, complete for us a lesson in the first table of the law. First, the holiness of God's being. He who he who is enthroned behind the veil, he who is enthroned upon the cherubim, so that you know, so much of the book of Leviticus has been concerned with what happened to Nadab and Abihu and what was, uh, what was the great error in their breaking the second commandment was it, that it broke the first commandment, that they were drawing near to God for worship. And they did not regard him as holy. And so there is the holiness of his being, the holiness of the one who blesses us. To bring it back to the context of Leviticus 24. And that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The holiness of his being. In the second place, the holiness of his worship. He has given the way of approaching him. And we have had uh, especially... The, the glory of uh, the first nine verses of this chapter, that there is an approach that doesn't get you incinerated. And that is to approach in the way that God has provided. Because to approach in the way that God has provided is to approach ultimately in Christ himself. And so there is a, a drawing near to God in which there is blessing and in which there is fellowship. And even those who who go in and, and uh, change the bread and see the, the light shining on the table, they come out and what do they do? They, they bless the people. The, the high priest blesses the people. And so this blessed way of approaching the holy God that treats him as holy. And you do that. You come reading and singing and praying and hearing preaching and taking the Lord's Supper. Why? Because God said so. Because Jesus is leading those things from heaven. And you treat God as holy by coming the way that he says to. And he smiles his blessing upon you. He even instructs that his blessing be pronounced upon you. Holy being, holy worship, holy convocation. This is what the previous chapter was full of, right? Not just the Sabbath as a holy convocation, but all of the holy callings together of the nation of Israel. And now to complete the set, as it were, of the first four commandments. Holy name. Holy name. But... In God's mercy to us, he shows us the connection between the first table and the second table. He shows to us the connection between the first great commandment. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? 
that I am, that, that I love the Lord my God with all my heart and my neighbor as myself. You see, the end, my neighbor as myself, actually comes from loving the Lord your God with all your heart. Because he made your neighbor in his own image. And he, in his kindness and generosity, has assigned to your neighbor whatever they have. And so the name of Yahweh is, of course, blasphemed whenever we misuse it on our lips. But we also despise the name of God when we hate and attack and murder those who are made in his image. They're different than animals. Why? Because they're made in his image. So whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Sixth commandment. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. Animals don't get sixth commandment protection. They get eighth commandment protection. Restoring it, or making it good in verse 18 and restoring it in verse 21, that's the language of property, isn't it? Recognizing that God has not only given man to bear his image, but that it is God in his providence who has assigned to each man his property. So that we don't divide so uh, uh, we don't separate from one another the two tables of the law. But we recognize that loving my neighbor as myself is actually an application of or an implication of loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that if someone is not keeping the first table of the law, they should not flatter themselves that they are such excellent experts in or keepers of the second table of the law. But if we're not keeping the second table of the law, if we're despising our neighbor and coveting or taking his property or bearing false witness against him or destroying, attacking marriage, then we're really not keeping the first table of the law either. Because those aren't the things that proceed from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the Lord here, as he completes this, uh, uh, this lesson that has been taking place in the last, uh, in the last two chapters uh, of the keeping of the first table of the law and its connection to being his covenant people and part of his congregation who gather to his holiness in his holy way on his holy day to take his holy name upon our lips. It permeates the rest of our life. You see, the application of the holiness of God is not just to worship, it's to the whole of life. It affects, instructs, and shapes how we interact with everyone. Not just the Israelite, by the way, but even the stranger who's in the land. Indeed, it affects how we interact with everything. You know, you don't have the right to waste what God gives you. It's been assigned to you by God. And you certainly don't have the right to take or destroy what God gives someone else. And so we see the greatness of the holiness of his name 
and the implications of the holiness of his name for all of our worship and all of our life. So here are the two great commandments. Love your Lord and his name and love those whom he made in his image and especially those upon whom he has put his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand and apply this part of Leviticus 24. Please forgive us, Lord, for how lightly we have borne your name and grant to us that we would see the greatness of your holiness by faith and respond to it in all of our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.